Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve Series 3. And, you know, again, really enjoying sitting down with some of the UK's finest police officers and staff members who've supported communities right up and down the United Kingdom. And I'm incredibly 
incredibly happy to be reporting that we're heading back north to Scotland today to sit down with uh, the now Dr. William Graham. Um, Dr. Graham is a senior lecturer in criminology and is a former senior police officer in the Strathclyde Police Force. He retired in 2010 after 30 years of service. His research interests are policy transfer in international criminal justice in the field of violence prevention initiatives, especially between America and the UK, and general policing studies. The topic of his doctoral research was an in-depth case study of the policy transfer of the Cincinnati Initiative to Reduce Violence, commonly referred to as CIRV, to Glasgow, Scotland. He was part of the Scottish Government research team examining the impact of organised crime gangs on local communities in Scotland that has reported back to government and is having an impact on the practices of organisations in the country. It's an absolute honour to welcome him to the podcast. William, welcome to the Protect and Serve podcast. First and foremost, how are you this morning? I'm fine, thank you very much, and it's, it's good to be here, Ollie. Listen, like every good detective, I like to start at the beginning of everybody's story in policing, and, and first and foremost, want to ask you, why the career in policing? Uh, that's a very good question. It's probably one that I, um, I kind of fell into it by, I wouldn't say not by mistake, but through circumstance. I left the police, uh, sorry, I left school and joined uh, BP uh, oil tankers as a deck officer cadet. Served for a year training and then kind of realised that this it wasn't the life for me. Um, I'd be away from home for too long. I was away a year. Uh, decided to resign my position in the, the Navy, Merchant Navy, uh, much to my father's disgust and horror. Um, then joined, uh, applied to join Strathclyde Police uh, as a constable and I was fortunate enough to be um, chosen within three months. So... Uh, I joined as a, a 19-year-old, uh, after having served a year in the Merchant Navy, which gave me, it gave me a, a great insight into uniform organisation. And I was fortunate enough to be posted to the near, quite near where I, I stayed. So that's, I went to the Govan area of Glasgow. Can we talk about sort of the the, the, tr- the training that you received up in Scotland? Was there w- were you aware of what policing involved? Had you done much research? Were you prepared for the challenges that were going to present you when you started at the at the training college to undertake both legislation, policy, and procedure, and the operational components? I would say yes and no, because I'd been in the navy, I'd been I'd went through training there, so I knew what was what it was like within a training environment in a college. Uh, Nautical College and, and also BP was very much uh, along, their officers were very much driven along the lines of the Royal Navy um, so I had a bit of an understanding of what it was like to go into a training environment but as a police officer I was the first person in my family um, who I knew that had went into the police so I went in completely blind um, not having much of a, an idea of what it was going to be like uh, only had watched policing and television and the movies, etc. As we all know, that's just complete and utter nonsense. But So I went to um, the Scottish Police College, blind, along with everybody else. It was a large cohort. Uh, there was only 11 from Strathclyde that went, but um, yeah, it was a bit of an eye-opener. And it took quite a bit of time to, to get your head around the training environment. Um, and at that time... Tully Allen Scottish Police College was again very militarised, it was very strict, um, your hair had to be cut to a certain length etc, bulled shoes, pressed uniform, all of which I quite enjoyed. So, so tell us about the, um, tell us about Strathclyde Police because prior to 
uh, all these small forces amalgamating. Strathclyde was the largest, I think, out of the seven, which it had a total numbering of officers of about 8,000. You know, tell us about that environment, the demographics, the challenges. What is that like for people that may have never visited that part of the world? Strathclyde was, yeah, you're right, it was the biggest force uh, in terms of numbers, in terms of population, in terms of crime. Uh, west of Scotland, uh, the main city of Glasgow and its conurbation of the, the, the small towns and cities around about it, numbered about two and a half million, which is almost half the population of Scotland. We had about two thirds of the crime. Uh, we had major football stadiums, um, two of the biggest teams in the UK, if not in the world. Um, so the challenges that Strathclyde faced were very unique. We had areas from the northwest out in the, the inner Hebrides, from Oban all the way down through Argyll to the major cities of Glasgow, the, the central belt, and then down to Ayrshire. So it was a big geographical area, very diverse going from rural to inner city to um, areas of high unemployment, socio-economic problems, etc., to very affluent areas, sometimes sitting side by side. So the challenges that the force had was uh, dealing with this wide variety of crimes with issues and social problems, etc. So it's, uh, I always prided myself that I, I was a member of Strathclyde Police, uh, I, I was fortunate to, to join the force during its time. And I'm happy to say I'm glad I wasn't in Police Scotland. I did leave before uh, Strathclyde uh, was merged into uh, the national force. Your graduation, you know, you said your father was um, taken aback when you resigned from BP and you moved across into policing. How, how was that? How was it viewed by friends and family when you made that announcement more broadly? Because often it can be a defining moment for a lot of cops in terms of friends start to drift away. Family can sometimes question, well, what does this mean for us in terms of <laughs> of anything that we may think about, do or act? You know, you're going to be watching us every time we go to the pub. What was it like for you when you sort of broke that news more broadly to your sort of cohort of friends and family? To be fair, family were very supportive, delighted. Uh, everybody saw it as a, a positive step. It's the most... Uh, it's, a, it's a rewarding profession. Uh, don't get me wrong. Friends-wise, because I'd been away for a year, I'd kind of drifted away from school friends. So uh, they, there wasn't really a big impact there. One of the things about when you join the police is you know, Ollie, that you form a family, you form friendships within the police and within the, the people that you're working with because of the, the close-knit nature of the police, the police unit. Uh, so I quickly formed friends within the police, uh, within my own division, within uh, other ex-students no, that I joined with or constables that I joined with. And we, we actually still stay in touch. I think out of the 11 of us that joined... There's about seven or eight of us still to stay in touch, and that's over 40 years now. Um, but overall, the, the feeling the, was very supportive. And my, my family were delighted. After my dad got over the, the shock of me resigning my commission in the Navy um, and joining the police, he was delighted and over the moon. Did the time at the training college change you as a person in terms of mature you, open your eyes to the different challenges that policing presented? Absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt about it. You, you have to grow up very quickly. Uh, you see things, certainly within the training environment, it was, you were still treated, let's say, not like a child, but certainly a pupil or a student. You were 
uh, kept under very strict uh, conditions at the college and then you went to your own force and as a, a probationary constable and you'd done a lot of training on the job uh, with tutors, with uh, senior officers and uh, again tested from a very early stage to make sure that they could accept you, that you fitted into the, the culture. Uh, that really made a difference. You really have to grow up. If you don't grow up and you don't um, fit in with the, the unit or with the unit, with the, the culture of the of the, the force, etc., um, you can really suffer. And I knew people that did that and or didn't didn't do it. Um, rebelled against some senior officers, their tutors, and tried to tell them that they knew better than anybody else, and they ended up out of the job. Uh, would it, was it a bad thing or a good thing? I think it was good. I'm, I now, as you know, I now lecture in criminology, and I'm, I'm also talking talk about cop culture, uh, and people talk about it in the negative, but there are always positives to it, and I think if you take the positives from it, then can stand you in good stead. Were you ready with the day you graduated and you go out to your first patrol area what's the sort of anticipation and the nerves and the thoughts and feelings going through your mind of being in this very adult environment and suddenly being called to support the community at sometimes their most dire need or, or greatest crisis for a very young man to come in and try and solve those problems was that quite overwhelming for you? Um, yes I know to an extent uh, I'd had the as I mentioned, I'd, I'd had the experience of the Navy, so again, there you have to grow up extremely quickly, otherwise you can disappear overboard, um, literally. The, when I joined, my first day as a uniformed officer in the division uh, was totally and utterly nerve-wracking. Uh, I'd been warned, like, don't do this, don't do that. I walked into the, the muster room at 15 minutes early, uh, half past six in the morning, sat down, I thought, and the place was empty, it was rows of seats, and I thought, I won't sit at the back and I won't sit at the front, I'll sit somewhere in the middle and move to the side. And as all these uh, older cops came in with their coffees and their cigarettes, um, they just picked up a chair and moved to the side and left me sitting in the middle like I, I just felt the world was caving in. Uh, you get through it. And of course then the, the sergeant's inspector come in and say, oh, go on, you must be the new boy. Yeah, so um, a test. But going out on patrol... You're very aware of the uniform, of the presence. Uh, I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of really good senior officers, uh, constables, who took you under their wing and made sure that you knew exactly what you were doing, gave you advice, etc. Um, there was the usual jokes, but the, the governing area of Glasgow was high crime, high unemployment, poor education, poor health, you know, all the, the poor factors that go into it. So... You were really under pressure a lot in every call you went to. There was a problem or an issue. You're dealing with some real hard people. Uh, so it's, it's something that you, you very quickly become, become uh, aware of and become used to. Because if you don't, you could really have uh, some real issues with, with your own self with and how you conduct yourself. So I thought it was, it was challenging but extremely rewarding. You know, there are often many scenarios where our our body is tested in that fight or flight 
type response to to scenarios that we've never come across before and they could be scenes of trauma a sudden death a road fatality um, a suicide do you remember or do you recall going to one of those first experiences where you were kind of just taken aback for a couple of seconds as to this is what this is like you know the smells the, the you know the, all the senses are going wild in terms of and then suddenly you realizing now I've got a job to do I've got to support people I've got to process this investigation I've got to make things happen how was that for you going through that first sort of experience of shock and response at the same time my first sudden death uh, I had a couple of months service uh, it was in the summer it was uh, I was I, I was actually out on patrol myself but I had another officer with me but I was basically uh, I was in charge of my own beat at that time and we had a call to a, a house uh, and it was always a top floor. Every call you went to in Glasgow was a top floor tenement. Um, and as we're going up the stairs, we're aware of a smell. And it was a man at the top that had said he's, he hadn't seen his neighbour for two weeks. Uh, it turned out to be six weeks. But um, my colleague, who shall remain nameless, because he knows who he, I know who he is, uh, he said, well, it's your call. Uh, I'm just here to back you up. And... So I put, opened the letterbox and the, the stench of death, decay, over, it was overpowering. At that point, Ronnie said, well, I'm, I'm moving. He moved away and I had to kick the door in. And um, cut a long story short, the, the, the heat was overpowering and the poor man had committed suicide. He'd hung himself using a, a, one of these makeshift knots over a door, uh, the door put the knot round the, one of the hinges and just slumped down and died. The scene that met me was something worse than a horror movie. Uh, the body had been completely eaten away by maggots. Um, all it was was that his head, his scalp had, was lying on his chest or the what was left of him. I have to say that I did turn and run out the house right across the corridor and vomited in the next door neighbour's sink. Um, Ronnie just laughed at me and said, you'll need to go back in again. So that's when it hits you that this is real. This is, this is not just something on the television. Um, you have to act professional. So I cleaned myself up, went back in, dealt with the incident, called up the, the doctor, called up the, the, forensic psycho- or the, the forensics people. The, the sergeant arrived, um, took me aside and said, well done, son. Um, then he sent me away to get my uniform cleaned up. Um, it was... I'll give it... So the next day I had to go to the mortuary uh, where the, the forensic pathologist was going to do the post-mortem. Um, he walked in. I had to go and identify the body that it was the same body that I'd found. Uh, he opened the door of the mortuary and there's the body lying on the slab and he said to me, yes, he's dead. Death by hanging, he walked out. He said he'd never seen a body like it in his life uh, and this was a, an experienced professor. I think at that point, I, that was probably the worst sudden death that I ever saw in 30 years. The, the state of the, the decomposition, the smell. And once you've smelled a dead body like that, you'll never, ever forget it. So it, it kind of hardens you up. But you're always aware when you're going to deal with incidents like that. And I had them for many years operationally as a constable, then sergeant inspector. You have to be aware of your surroundings and the people round about you. Uh, and you always remember that this is someone's father, brother, sister, mother, daughter, you name it. Um, 
and you have to treat them with respect. So, and I think that's one of the issues that you have to be careful of. Uh, where are you, your surroundings, um, how you deal with the, the actual body, treat it with respect. Uh, I know police talk have this black humour, um, dark humour that they use to try and get through situations. And that certainly uh, is, a, is something, again, that you have to be very careful of. And we've seen media stories recently of uh, officers laughing over that dead body, etc. So um, that taught me to be respectful, do my job, be professional, uh, and then go away somewhere quiet and reflect on it. But th it was the most horrific scene that I've ever seen. So when you see something on television now, it's okay. Do you think you, I, 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 trying to phrase this appropriately, do you think you were fortunate to see that early on in your career because it almost gave you the foundations of resilience at probably what was the extreme? Yes, I would agree. And I, I think, it, it, don't get me wrong, every incident you go to it has its own traumas, its own horrors, etc., etc. I had a uh, caught death. You'll never see anything worse than that. But... Uh, I think from an early stage that you think, well, if that's the worst body, the type of body that you'll see, then you can you can you can handle anything else thereafter. So we talk about um, throughout the the series of the Protect and Serve podcast is being able to compartmentalise these issues of trauma that you're exposed to. And when we look back in history, if you look at the early 1980s, probably the the welfare which is available to police officers is very different to what is available to them today in terms of that support mechanism, being able to reach out to different organisations. It was It's more accepted today to talk about mental health challenges than it probably was back in the 80s, arguably. How, do you, how did you see that sort of evolution through your career and how did you manage the sort of stresses? Did you, were you able to sort of debrief to friends and family? Obviously, that sort of job is a difficult one because you can't really explain that to family, but to your colleagues, is the, is the canteen culture alive and well during that period to be able to discuss those matters? Yes and no. Uh, you actually, you, you make a very good point, Ollie, about you know, the, the mental health awareness and but also the culture the canteen culture, having to be strong, having to be seen to be strong. And sometimes you could be, certainly in the early days, if you went into the canteen and you broke down, you might be viewed on as being quite soft. So there was this, you could have discussions with your maybe closer colleague, you know, the people that you work with, you know, your neighbour, who you'd work with a lot and you could have a chat about it. But um, certainly the older, the much older, more grisly officers, you wouldn't want to be seen to be soft um, in front of them I was fortunate I've been married 40 years I married my my wife was a nurse we met when she was a, a, a trainee nurse I was a probationary officer uh, so she saw the same types of issues that I saw uh, in a nursing background so we were fortunate enough that you could go home after a shift and you could sit and share experiences because she was seeing horrific things in work and hospital and I was seeing them in the street. So having a partner that is um, amenable and is able to deal with these sort of things and listen so we could bounce off each other. Uh, because there are, no, there are no doubt, I mean, I, um, one of my colleagues uh, from my shift was murdered on duty um, and that had the most profound effect on not just me, but everybody in the group and the shift that we worked with him. Uh, he was stabbed to death on duty. And that had a big impact on everybody, certainly me also, because at the funeral, 
was I've never seen so many growing people cry or growing men cry. There is there. I don't think there's any greater challenge to policing than when you lose a colleague, particularly uh, when they're when they're doing you know protecting and serving and and meeting the needs and expectations of the communities. But at the same time, it's always. Um, one of those moments where you see a blue family come together in terms of the policing family coming together, not only to support the family of the fallen officer, but each other to get through what is a very traumatic experience and sort of brings it home of the risks which exist within policing. Do you think that the risks which existed when in, in, in the earlier part of your career have got worse in terms of the risks that officers face today? Or do you think it's been consistent throughout sort of the last 30 years? I would say it's consistent. Um, I I saw incidents when I was a young officer which were horrific. Um, the violence that you faced. I had uh, attacked myself. Someone tried to take my head off with a pair of garden shears at an incident. Uh, it was a bad week. Uh, the next night someone threw a crowbar at me uh, and missed my head by inches. So it's, I wouldn't say things, it's I'd say different. I think the violence is still there. Albeit the, the policing has changed. We were then, after my call, it was Lewis Fulton who was murdered on duty. And from that point onwards, the police changed. Um, we were started to be provided with body armour. We were given different equipment. Um, we were given training. Uh, so police now, and towards the end of my career, you were, officer safety training was, was common practice. You had to be qualified every year. You carried uh, different types of baton, CS spray, etc., so the training, the the equipment that you were given was better, and I know that is the case now. Um, the use of taser, the use of um, uh, using your presence, your voice to de-escalate incidents, we're much more aware now, and officers are much better equipped than we were back in the eighties. Uh, so I think that I'm not violence is, is violence; it's still the same. Um, I was fortunate to take it through my service without any serious incident but sometimes it's just it's there by the grace of God it's sometimes you're in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, you think well to get home after a shift was always the best thing uh, and to walk out your service after 30 years um, I didn't think it at the time but people said congratulations you survived and I think that was uh, it only struck me after I left the police Gorbals was the same. Gorbals got a reputation back in the 40s, 50s, 60s for the Razor Gangs, etc. It was no worse than anywhere else, um, the, the inner city areas. The, it got a rep, it, it's been shown in books and television, and the media are very good at, at portraying areas if they're the worst place on earth. The Gorbals was not any worse. The The incident, uh, Willie, uh, William Blair and I worked together in the admin case management, so I knew him extremely well. Lewis was on my shift as a, a younger officer, so I knew Lewis uh, not as well as, as, as William Blair, but they went to an incident and the boy had mental health issues and he hadn't been taking his medication and the mother had told had phoned the doctor. They'd done, I'd say they'd done nothing about it, but the boy jumped out a window 
and the officers had no option but to try and stop him because he was running around the street with a bread knife uh, trying to attack people. So they got him cornered in a doorway. And at that point, we didn't wear body armour. It was They were wearing white shirts and ties. That's what we had. And they, they tried to prevent him, prevent him from escaping out of the doorway. And that's where he stabbed Lewis through the heart under the left arm. So, uh, And William Blair gets stabbed also. Uh, it was just, and but that was the type of incident that we all went to, all the time. You know, and it, it was it was tragic. Did, did after that incident, did it make you sort of think about sort of, you know, the challenges that presented themselves in terms of responding to these incidents, the risks that existed, and I, I suppose more importantly, family perception of the risks that you faced on the front line, particularly your girlfriend and you know what how do you manage i suppose it's one thing to manage your own anxieties and stresses but it's equally another to try and keep the anxieties and the worries of family at bay to say listen it's okay i'm all right you know i i can look after myself it's no problem there's plenty of us out there how do you, is is that how you sort of try and manage those those fears that they may have yes you have to um, sometimes you downplay the fears and the, the incidents that you you can't bring everything home with you because you would terrify people. Um, mm. I was, as I said, I was fortunate my wife was enough, so she saw all these. She saw the aftermath of a lot of incidents, so she wasn't naive. But my mother, father, no, keep it, keep it under wraps. Don't tell them everything because they would worry, um, and that's that's normal. I think everybody had the same issues. So let's let's move on in your career. So you, you spent five years in the city centre. During your early career, you spent most of your time uh, on foot patrol and in plainclothes duties. But then there was this move for the next few years where you had a spell in the police records office. Now, that's an interesting posting. What What's that all about and what's your responsibilities? Uh, as I say, I, I went to the, the records office through default because the, the police at that time um, had paper records for criminal history. Uh, the Scottish system is different from the English Police National Computer and they went electronic so every force then became responsible for inputting all of the records onto an electronic system so Strathclyde went live and within a week they realised that they couldn't cope with the existing staff that was civilianised uh, it wasn't not the problem of the civilians just they didn't have enough they had 12 people in the office and they very quickly realised they needed 12 other people. So they picked 12 officers who were on light duties, protected duties. I had torn my knee ligaments playing rugby for the police. Uh, and I had just came back to work in a protected capacity. And I was sent to work in the new Strathclyde Police Records Office. Ostensibly for a couple of months to plug the gap. Um, but I received so much training and gained so much experience and knowledge of the system how to input records, how to update, how to do advanced searching, etc. That I, I stayed there for two years, and um, that was a it was a fantastic. It was a really interesting time. Um, I, I got exposed to a different environment, working within headquarters. Uh, it gave me this in depth knowledge of the system, which then helped me 
later on in my career. So you've got a bit of experience under your belt now, you know, after from joining from 19 in the 1980s to the point we are now approaching 1995. Were you keen to start looking at greater levels of responsibility and leadership? Obviously, the next the next step up from here is the, is the, is the sergeant rank, which is really the frontline supervision, I believe, one of the most important ranks in policing, that and superintendents. Tell us about sort of your desire to maybe start looking after and being more responsible for the for the for the welfare of other members on your team um i had this for about two three four years i, I was keen to be promoted it takes time and in, in the, the strathclyde system as it was then you had to be performing at a certain level all the time you were appraised by your colleagues by your ma- uh, managers etc uh, and i got to a position where i was ready for promotion i had been uh, interviewed at divisional level interviewed at force level and i was ready for promotion so i got that um, step up uh, for to be promoted to sergeant and I went to the east end of the city uh, and it was moving from the frying pan to the fire it was just as busy if not busier walking into the muster room for the first time is daunting you've got 30 officers sitting looking at you to see who is this person what's he like I had 14 years service so I'd been there seen it and done it so I knew what I was going into but it's still it was a very challenging environment because you're aware that they're testing you, just the same as we would test our sergeants when we were constables. Um, but you very quickly have to stand up. You've got to, as you say, look after the welfare. So it's not just about you. You're now looking after 30 people. Uh, and as you said, the buffer between senior management and the officers. So the sergeant rank is the hardest rank, I would say, in the police. And one of the one of the one of the most significant challenges I think for police sergeants for the first time is managing poor performance and making sure that your officers are operating at the optimum. You know, how did you sort of tackle those sort of early challenges where you're not always going to have officers that are doing the right thing? Sometimes you've got to challenge poor behaviour. Sometimes you've got to challenge underperformance. How do you navigate that and establish a leadership style which fits the needs and expectations of the team you're leading as well as for yourself? You have to set standards for yourself, for, for others as well. I was fortunate to work with a lot of really good supervisors as a constable, and you tend to pick the good pieces, the good bits of work, the good bits of uh, advice that they gave you, and how did and watching them, how did they operate, how did they deal with incidents, how did they deal with poor performance, etc. And that's what you try to do. I was very much, uh, I would talk to the officers, bring them on, try and encourage them, give them leadership, give them help, assistance. But you get to the point where if, if they continue poor performance, then you've got to deal with it because that's your job, is to deal with poor performance. Whether it be from a discipline side or just uh, poor work, poor appearance, that, and that can be it's difficult, but it's something you have to do. And one of the, the issues of being a frontline supervisor is being part of the team but still having this level above them. So don't ever compromise yourself by going out and getting drunk with them. Uh, you have to be very careful what you're doing. So I want to talk about this whole um, community. Community policing is is one of the most important aspects of policing, I believe, in this country in terms of 
the community are your eyes and ears and we rely heavily on their support during investigations, reporting crime, telling us what's going on, feeding us intelligence. So so policing models can be intelligence led. And I'm fascinated by your transfer to Easter House in 2000 as the sergeant in charge of community policing for three years. What was your sort of desire to move into that area of community policing and what were you what would you what were you wanting to try and establish and grow and enhance as part of that capability? Uh, I, I had been three years in the administration department and it was time to move on. Uh, the deputy commander spoke to me and he said, look, there's an opportunity in community policing. And it was an area that I, I was keen on. It was an area that I, was, I felt passionate about because working in communities, and I think the model of policing had began to change then, that it was much more mobile officers and cars and being much more responsive to incidents. But as the community team, and I was fortunate, to, the Easter House, the Greater Easter House area is, again, extremely busy, but it has this, and it had a bad reputation, but it had a massive amount of really good people who wanted to make a difference and live their lives. And the team that I, uh, that I took over had some good officers and some bad, uh, and I, I very quickly got rid of the ones who, I didn't, who weren't performing. Older ones who'd been there a long time, and they just they had different ideas. So we built a team which of 12 officers from different experience levels, etc., um, age, gender, that really had a, keen, a keenness to make a difference, get to know their communities, make connections, understand what the real problems were, and come up with solutions on how to deal with them. And that was a, an area of policing which I felt we had moved away from, but I was given this chance to take this team and really make a difference, and I think we did. Uh, I, it was probably the most rewarding three years that I had. Did you see a change in um, the way policing was carried out over the years in terms of a far greater speed of the news media cycle in terms of the speed that things are publicised, the evolution of social media. Well, you know, 2003, we're just starting to see that the beginnings of that to some extent. And then managing sort of, if we look today, as you said, as a sergeant for you, one of the most important aspects was setting a culture and not compromising yourselves. And one of the greatest challenges I think policing faces today is managing cultures, sergeants not becoming too over-friendly with their staff. How did you sort of navigate sort of the evolution of younger officers coming through with different levels of expectation in terms of one, one area, sort of dress and presentation? I was, we were fortunate at the time when I was there that we still wore proper uniforms. Um, um, you, you probably understand that I have quite high levels of uh, how you appear is extremely important. I think what we've now done is we've dumbed the uniform down Okay, there's certain practical elements of it which are required, but the the, the thing I can't stand seeing is officers who are scruffy. Uh, and I was very conscious of my officers. And when I when I became an, a, a, an operational inspector in the same area, um, I was keen to drive standards to make sure that everybody appeared uh, in the proper uniform. They wore their hats. I mean, this might sound a bit silly, but if you're wearing a hat, then people see you. And I'm talking about the proper skipped hats with the, the checkered dice band, etc. Um, don't, don't go walking around the streets without a hat on. Um, make sure that you're properly presentable. And then the, the, the public, they, they come to expect certain standards. If they see someone standing in front of them who do, doesn't care about their appearance, then they're not, they're, their opinions of the, the, that officer, before they even do anything, are, are coloured. They can be... They can be 
they're like, well, this person doesn't take a pride in their appearance, so why? So how are they going to be as an officer? Uh, so appearances standards are extremely important. And I think, uh, again, I was fortunate enough to, when I left the police that the standards started to drop. And I, I've got a lot of ex-police friends, and you see cops walking around the streets. They go out their car and they're going into the shops. They, they're carrying their, you know, their, their sandwiches or they're going in and buying things, no hats on, their trousers are not pressed, etc. Um, and it's just standards have went down. And I think that is reflected in the way that people, the public now look at the police. They've lost, I think they've lost respect for a lot of it. It's interesting, my superintendent had this quite famous saying that stayed with me forever, look good, feel good, be professional. And, and, and that really rang home to me, you know, like, and the standards you walk past is the standards you're willing to accept. And he always wanted us to challenge those. It was the small things. If we couldn't get the small things right, how were we ever expected to get the big things right? So it's always been something, presentation and, and how our police officers perceived, I think, is critically important in terms of appearance. So I, I'm certainly with you on, on that point. What I wanted to move on to is... The rank of sergeant, you establish yourself, you're doing great work in community policing. Had you, obviously you reached the rank of inspector, but did you have those aspirations to ne- to take the next step up into a commissioned rank, greater responsibility? What was the move like and the mentality around wanting to move a little bit further? I think when you get to the rank of, of sergeant and then you start to progress in the rank to different roles, etc., um, you, you kind of work your way up the ladder of the, the division how you're viewed within the division. But again, you're, you're appraised by your supervisors and so they're looking at you all the time and they realise that you're doing a good job. So you, you start to think, I can move to the next level. You also work with inspectors a lot more than you would as a constable. And you can see there who are the good inspectors and who are the bad. And you think, well, I can do the job just as well, if not better than them. So you start to, you, you're thinking, yeah, um, that's what you want to do. So I had a spell as an acting inspector for six months um, to replace an inspector who was away at Camp Van Zeist. He was involved in the Lockerbie um, trial. And that really opened my eyes to the, the inspector rank again. So and it gave me a taster. And, <coughs> excuse me, I was fortunate enough, I applied for uh, an inspector's position in Scottish Criminal Record Office. Uh, the body that I'd been working next to when I was a constable in the records office in Strathclyde, the Scottish Criminal Record oversaw the whole of the country. So the job came up, I applied for it, and I, I was promoted to inspector, uh, and then was seconded out the force to SCRO for three years. And that was uh, probably, it was again challenging, but rewarding. Uh, it was a different, I'm working at a, a strategic level, and I'm working with chief constables and across the force, but also representing the Scottish forces down in England at PNC meetings, etc. So, Now, arguably, um, one of your biggest pieces of work, I think, in the latter part of your career, obviously you were part of the team which implemented the Missing Persons website into, into Scotland. Obviously, it wasn't part of the UK system. Am I right in saying that? Uh, yes, the, the system was being run in England for the, and Wales for the 43 forces, by a company and um, at the time ACPO, the Association of Chief Police Officers were running it for for England, for the forces and we weren't running it in Scotland which was a travesty Uh, the director of SCRO called me in and says, Bill could you go and just go and see what this is about 
So I went down to London, uh, met the people there involved, and I came back saying, why are we not doing this? This is, this is a nonsense. This is a facility which is... Scotland is not a different country. We're part of the United Kingdom. We don't have borders. People move all over the place. Uh, and it, we were missing out on this piece of technology which uh, I felt was crucial. I, I came back to the office, told the director, said to him that we need to do this. And he said, fine, go and make it happen. So I was then, I worked with the government, Scottish government. I also worked with all the, the different chief constables across the forces, got their buy-in, uh, got the government buy-in, um, worked with the people in England. At the, it was the Police National Missing Persons Bureau. Uh, so over a period, I think it was about six months, the time I got all the, the boxes ticked, um, the chief constables signed the contracts, etc. Uh, we launched the Missing Persons website in Scotland uh, with the Justice Minister at the time um, launched it. And I remember she, she, she thanked me for my effort and uh, acknowledged the fact that why we were so we were behind the times. So that's when we, we brought it into Scotland. A really powerful tool. Um, and... And I think it was it was long overdue. And as part of the launch, you'd looked for a suitable missing persons case to highlight and to use the new age progression technology. And, and obviously, this was the introduction of when you met the father of missing schoolgirl, Vicky Hamilton, who was 15 and disappeared from a bus stop in Bathgate, West Lothian in 1991. But sadly, this case was finally, uh, finally solved when the serial killer, Peter Tobin, was convicted of her murder after her body was tragically found 17 years later buried in the garden of Tobin's former home in Margate in Kent. So quite quite an interesting and quite a huge case to start that whole matter with, I would imagine. It would have been quite a quite a sad experience meeting with a, a young lady's father. I connected with him um, through people that knew him. Obviously, you don't just phone... You didn't, I didn't just phone Mr Hamilton up and say, can we come and talk to you? We, we, I got in touch with local officers who had dealings with him and they, dealt, they spoke to him first, then I met him. Um, got his agreement. Now, Vicky had been missing for this time for about oh, 13 years. Um, he never gave up hope, and he was a poor soul. And I, it was it was heartbreaking to be with him. But he saw he saw the the benefits that this could help. It might not help Vicky, and, I, and ultimately it didn't. But he saw the benefits that that kind of system would have, so that people could see that people are missing and this facility had been in America and they had um, they had a lot of, exp of um, examples of young kids that went missing and then they'd used the technology to age progress them and they were actually found so it had a positive impact but Mr Hamilton was um, I, I found him a humble man um, but obviously racked with this horrible fear that he would never see his daughter again and um, he agreed and he gave us the picture, and we got we used that as part of the launch. Um, yeah, it was a, and I, I had a tragic ending. The fact that um, she was eventually found in two thousand and eight, but I think there was closure there for for the family as well. And I, I was I was actually looking at this morning, and it was a comment about let's remember her, not Tobin. No, I think that's a really important point, and often often we make that mistake. We we seem to. 
not glorified, but we seem to focus on these really abhorrent, narcissistic, evil people in society rather than we forget the victims, you know. And we've seen that lately with sort of Lucy Letby, sort of the serial killer who killed all those babies, where we spend more time focusing on this evil woman rather than the poor children and the families that have that have that have come into contact with her. It's, it's um, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that point. So I, I want to focus on probably another really significant project that you've worked on in the last two and a half years of your policing career as the deputy manager of the Glasgow Violence Reduction Programme based in the east of the city, Community Initiative to Reduce Violence, CIRV, that was brought in from Cincinnati to Glasgow in 2008. Now, quite a significant piece of work you did there to finish up your career. Tell us about it and the impact it still has today. Yeah, it was a significant piece of work. I was fortunate, well, I was working in East End by that time as a, a uniformed inspector, uh, had experience obviously of the, the environment, the gang problem, the violence problem. Um, we had 55 gangs in East End alone. Gang fighting was commonplace. And it was, it was a, the violence reduction unit had been instructed to look for, or they were looking for new ideas. The chief constable at the time had been in America and heard about the work of Boston and other places using what's called focus deterrent strategy. It was focusing on reducing violence in gangs and it had been developed in Boston in the mid-90s. So they brought the idea to Glasgow to the the East End. I was brought in as the deputy manager uh, due to that I'd worked in the East End. So I had operational responsibility for the day-to-day running, building the team, um, the, the chief inspector who I'd worked with in the same division, um, he had the kind of strategic level role, obviously. And uh, it, we brought people in from different organisations to work with us, from the council, from social work, from education, from health, from careers. And we all worked within one office and I had the day-to-day running of a responsibility. I also, we used a tool called what eventually became self-referral sessions, but in America they were called call-in sessions, where you called in gang members into a room, or a courtroom, to listen to various messages about, you have to stop what you're doing, the community's had enough, and if you don't stop what you're doing, we will come after you with all law enforcement methods. So we, uh, very early, I was given the responsibility of devising and running these sessions. And then we realised that, uh, after speaking to the the lawyers, you can't call in people who have been arrested for fit for violence because if they turn up at a courtroom to listen to this, that might be construed that they're, they're pleading guilty or they're, so they're not innocent before they're guilty. So we changed it to a self-referral session and we merely asked gang members to come in and listen. And we were, some people looked at us as if we were stupid. Um, the first session, we invited in 80 people different, from different gangs across the East End and 40 turned up to listen to the sessions. We ran 10 sessions, everyone evolved, we changed, we narrowed it down, we became more slick at what we were doing. Uh, we made the, the, met to, the first session was two hours, but we reduced it to one over the period. We had 10 sessions running over the three year, two and a half year period. We invited 700 people and 450 turned up of their own free volition. We reduced violence in gangs in the East End by 50%. We reduced weapon carrying by 50%, roughly. Um, it was the most successful programme that we'd ever seen. I left the police. I retired in late 2010. 
and I was given the opportunity to go into university and do a PhD. And so my PhD topic was, how do you take a gangs project from Cincinnati and transfer it to Glasgow? How do you do that? So it was taking a concept, but taking into account local context. Uh, so that was my, my background. Unfortunately, the programme stopped in July 2011 due to politics, um, which I, I won't go into in this podcast. But the, my PhD, I, I was then given the opportunity to go and work in Enfield in London. They asked me to go down and help them set up uh, a similar type project. I was working my PhD. Um, I eventually finished it. Uh, my three-year funding finished and I got the job here at Aberty University as a lecturer, finished up writing my PhD and I graduated in 2016 as a lecturer, um, as a doctor of philosophy. I then got the opportunity in 2018 to work with Northampton Police, uh, delivering a similar type project to Glasgow. Uh, I was their advisor. Uh, and that was, a, again, successful reducing violence in gangs in Northampton, um, which has brought me up to the, my current role uh, I'm now a senior lecturer, but I'm also part of a research team which is looking at this focused deterrence in five different sites across England. Um, it's the biggest study of its, of its type in the world that's never been done before in this scale. Um, so the work that I've done in Glasgow has spun out to Enfield, to Northampton, to now five cities in England. Uh, I think it's it defined my life, but it's defined certainly the last 15 years of my life. Um, the work that, I, that I'd done in my last couple of years and I'm still working on it I've now published on it as well so um, it's challenging, rewarding and extre- I'm excited to be part of the team which is evaluating these five sites Would you change anything looking back on your 30 years in policing and your studies since you've left the job was there anything you change or would the script stay the same? Um <sighs> My wife asked me this the other day. <laughs> Would you, do you regret anything? I think you always have regrets, but would I change anything? One or two small things, but if my career hadn't been the way it was, I would not be what I'm doing now. So the answer, no. I'm, I'm, I'm working, I'm doing, I've got my life's dream. I'm a doctor, I'm a senior lecturer, I'm teaching young people at university, I'm giving them my experience uh, a lot of the, the students are going on to the police, to other jobs within criminal justice. Uh, I'm sharing my experience and knowledge with different people in England to help them set up and do this. So, no, I wouldn't change anything. Well, Dr William Graham, the last 15 minutes of conversation about your life in Scottish policing has been absolutely fascinating. From the trials and tribulations of an early policing career and seeing sort of quite confronting scenes of death and and dealing with issues at a very young age to developing key policy to help navigate such things as strong community policing relationships, strong organised crime, fighting methodologies and understanding how those can be tackled really at the pointy end of frontline policing. It's been an absolutely um, brilliant sit-down discussion and I thank you ever so much for your service and what you continue to do for those following behind you in your lecturing and your work going forward and uh, thank you for joining us on the show this morning. Thank you so much, it's been a pleasure. Wishing you all the best for the future. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. 
This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.